Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about Current? You're going to like this guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y, and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group. Group, member FDIC and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. All right, welcome back to OK Computer. I'm Dan Nathan. Welcome, Rick Heitzman of First Mark. Hey, Dan, what's going on? You know, we're doing it here, man. We're going to get to the markets. A crazy, crazy day in the markets. This is Tuesday afternoon into the close. We have a sea of red. We're going to talk about why we had that surprise downgrade, a negative pre announcement by Snap last night that has the NASDAQ reeling. But before we get to all that. Stick around for the second half of this pod. I have Ryan Dennehy, the CEO, founder of Electric, and Dan Turan, former guest on OK Computer and partner at Gutter Capital. And we're going to talk about the state of valuations and private tech and a whole host of other things. So that's a great conversation. Lots of themes that Rick and I and some of our other co-hosts have been talking about over the last few months or so. All right, Rick, let's talk about this mess of a market here. What was your original take? I was on the set of Fast Money last night. We were talking about the Great Investor Day by JP Morgan. Jamie Dimon was speaking all day. He was actually talking fairly constructively about credit, about consumers, about their business, about net interest margins. The market had a pretty decent feel to it on the close with JP Morgan closing up 6%. I guess my point on the show at that juncture was that, okay, what else do you expect them to say? JP Morgan's stock had been underperforming the S&P massively. It had just made on Friday a new 52-week low, which was down 33% from its highs made in the fall, and then this snap news came out. The most important thing to me about the snap news, Rick, was the timing of it. It came out weeks after they had just reported and guided, but they're talking about the speed in which their business changed. It's really amazing. First, starting with snap, it started with that guidance. It wasn't that, hey, something happened at snap. They talked about the changing macro. They talked about the shooting war. They talked about interest rates rising. They talked about ways that the consumer is feeling less confident, including they have to pay more at the pump. And there was nothing really that happened in their business, which is it's all the shock, especially on the heels of Jamie Dimon saying there's nothing to see here for the consumer. But we're starting to see things line up. We talked last week about Walmart missing. Target missing tremendously. You're starting to see subprime and near prime consumer credit misses. The consumer's weak. And the further you get down the socioeconomic spectrum, they're very weak when they're more susceptible to significant price changes at the pump or on consumer staples. And we think you're going to start to see that moving up. And whether you see hiring freezes or layoffs, people are getting rattled and you're starting to see it across the board. My takeaway was this is not the consumer clicking less on Snap ads or anything. This is their customers, their advertisers saying, whatever's going on in our business, we need to rationalize our costs. And this is something, like you said, you and I have been talking about this on the pod. A lot of our guests have been discussing this on the pod over the last few weeks and probably as long as months or so is that a lot of these companies, when their margins are getting stretched, either by supply chain disruptions or greater input costs, whatever it may be, they have to make a decision to pass on those price increases 
to their consumer or eat it and take a hit to margins. So one of the things, and you said it last week, is that we're starting to see some of these layoffs. We're starting to see hiring freezes, right? We're starting to see this as these companies are focused more on profitability. And I really feel like it's more the tip of the iceberg rather than this thing shaking out right here. What do you think? We started talking about this a year ago when we started to hear interest rates were going to rise. So therefore, your threshold for return on investment is going to rise. And you probably heard ROI talked about on the expense side more in boardrooms in the last quarter than you've heard in the last three years. I don't want to think about how am I going to get an ROI on every single piece of my expense structure, whether that's a person, whether that's an IT project, or whether that's an ad unit. So as folks are tightening their belts, raising their threshold, they're saying, hey, I'm not able to drive a reasonable return on ad spend here, and therefore I'm cutting ad spend. And you're seeing all these things. The reason you call it an ecosystem is it's all interrelated. Let's talk about Snap for a second as a stock. I just actually bought a little bit. Again, this is Tuesday into the close. The stock is down 42%. The stock topped out in late September at 83 bucks. It started this month at 30. It started last month in April at 40. I look at this thing and I say to myself, it's got an enterprise value of about $22 billion or so. And I just think of like the replacement value of this company and the platform that they have and how unique of a property as it sits inside of, let's say, this secular shift of digital ads and obviously social mobile and all those sorts of super trends, as you call them, it's not easily replaceable. It's not easily made from scratch here. Now, I get it. The valuation is still a little fat. It's trading four times sales. You'd probably like to see that overshoot and it may overshoot. I'm just curious when you see something like this, what's your initial inclination here? Because I think the all-time lows during the pandemic was like five or six. There's probably two things. Specific to Snap, I think it's one of the most vulnerable because going back to the ROI point, the as folks transition to a tighter ROI threshold, they go to more performance-based advertising. Google AdWords, I pay per click, I pay per customer acquired. There's nothing wishy-washy about that. Snap's generally brand advertising, generally building awareness, and that's the first thing to go. So I'm not sure what the right revenue number to put on that, which is effectively what Evan said yesterday, that, hey, we don't know what the right revenue number is. And as we've talked about on past shows, you can only look at PE if you have confidence in the E, and we think that E might be worrisome. I also see the bull case of Snap in that Evan's proven to be one of the great producers of digital products the last 20 years. Their product evolution has smoked everybody. Clearly smoked Twitter, as we've talked about before, has overtaken our good friends at Pinterest in terms of product velocity as well as creativity. And that's been excellent. And therefore, they're probably the closest thing that we have in the U.S. to a super app. The concept of a super app in Asia where one app rules all, things, something like WeChat, where you do everything from group text conversations to pay your landlord. And if you think about Snap being, especially for, call it the younger generations, a communication tool, a discovery tool for media, as well as a media consumption tool, that really is the closest thing we see here. And it's going to be awful hard to displace them in the ecosystem. I'll just say this. During 2020, when the stock traded as low as 5 or $6, they ended up having $2.5 billion in sales. Those were up to $4 billion last year, expected to do $5.3. Maybe it's a little less than that. Let's just say it's 5 So that, let's say up 100% since 
2020 and next year expected to do a little over 7 billion. And I look at that and I say to myself, all right, it's trading at about 21 times earnings. And you say on a gap basis, they're still expected to lose a little money, but they're expected to have substantial margin improvement, Rick. And I think in that 2020 year, they were low 50s gross margins, expected to be low 60s this year and next. And if any of that is able to materialize at about three times sales and maybe about 21 times those adjusted earnings, and you think of the scarcity of this product, I say to myself, okay, I might be buying it here at 13. I might be buying it more at 11 in a few months. I might be buying it maybe a little under 10. But if you have a long-term time horizon and you say to yourself, how many properties have been able to get to hundreds of millions of monthly active users in the social mobile space? I say to myself, you just use the word super app. I don't think people think of Twitter as a super app. Not at all. That's part of Elon's thesis, right? Can you turn Twitter into a super app? You went there. Elon's thesis. He has no thesis. The bids of Fugazi. It's literally a bunch of bullshit. And you know what, man? That spread. Have we made our bet whether he's going to own Twitter yet or not? No fucking way, dude. I literally said it the day on Fast Money when it came out. There's no way. The spread is widening. Not at this price. I don't think he buys it at this price, but I think there is a price in which he's a buyer. All right. So does the company sell it at 40? The stock's trading at 36. I think they have to. Oh, I don't know, man. How about at 42.00? Is that Elon's next price? He's such a child. I tweeted this the other day. You know what he's like with all his 420 and his 69 tweets and all this crap about, he's like Tom Hanks and big. <laughs> I saw that tweet, yeah. It's like enough already, dude. It's not funny. Now, here's the risk. To your point, if he pays the breakup fee and he's not forced to buy the company at 54.20, the stock goes straight to $25. And it came out with who the other equity participants are in the deal. There's no major private equity firm who's backing up and saying, hey, I'm the underbidder at $51. The underbidder is clearly south of 40 bucks, and I don't even know if there's an underbidder there. But as importantly, Dan, it sounded like, as you've been the bear on this podcast for the last year or so. So the last 13 years. You've been calling the bottom and snap. You're a buyer and snap. How much worse can it get? Are you saying... We're getting to the point where the bad news is out there and now it's time to selectively buy. Yeah, I think it's a matter of time horizon. So here's a good one. Here's the one I started picking out the other day too is PayPal. And I said to myself, okay, the stock is down 80 some percent. And at one point, late 2020, it had a, a greater market cap than Bank of America. And so now here it is, it's under $100 billion. I think estimates have come in dramatically. I think the pull forward in demand during the pandemic, I think all of that made total sense about why the deceleration will warrant a lower multiple on a lot of these sorts of names. But now, now, not only did this stock take out the pre-pandemic high, Rick, it also took out its pandemic low. And I was looking at it relative to Square. Square could still drop 50% to get back to its pandemic low. So I'm talking about its late March of 2020 low. So picking at things like PayPal. And again, this is not a trade. This is not me putting my fast money hat on. Listen, some of these stocks could easily double. If we were to bottom at some point late this year, those stocks are going to go up 100% before you can even blink, not in a day or anything like that. No, but you're saying before you even think about it, before you have time to readjust your bearings, you're going to see certain of these things rip, especially the good companies who might have been unfairly beaten down. Our babies in the bathwater, as we call them. 
I don't know if it's fair. You know the end of Unforgiven when Clint Eastwood has that shotgun, that double barrel on Gene Hackman, and he goes, I don't deserve this. I was building a house. And then Clint Eastwood says, deserves, got nothing to do with it. And then he blows him away, and that's one of the final scenes. To me, deserves, got nothing to do with it. Fact of the matter is, things overshot, like, insanity to the upside they're going to do so to the downside i'm just looking for levels whether they be valuation levels or combination of technical levels or some sentiment indicators put them all together to me on many stocks i'm saying get back to your pre-pandemic highs so i'm talking about february 2020 before the s&p went down 35 percent. that was the end of normal times right that's right so that's one benchmark and then the other one are their quality companies that we know are going to be around in 10 years. They're going to be able to build on the pull forward of the business that have got to another benchmark, which would be the pandemic low. And PayPal hits that. Now, Snap clearly doesn't, but I'm also starting to kind of leg into the QQQ down 30% because I think ultimately the NASDAQ 100, which we know the five names that make up about 40% of the weight, they're going to go down 30%. Amazon's already down 40 some percent. Google's on its way. Apple and Microsoft at some point will be down 30 plus percent. That's when you want to layer into the QQQ in a big way. And then you get the dozens of stocks that are down 60, 70, 80%. Again, it's time horizon. Yeah, and you have optionality on that long tail. And there's a lot of stocks that are in that long tail that are really interesting that they've only been public for a couple of years and already been beaten down. You're going to see some upside there, but I think it's good to say the last time it was called February 2000 was normal times because of, again, Snap coming out and saying, hey, we gave you guidance a month ago, but there's so many, as we've talked about before, there's so many things going on here, whether it's a war, whether it's recession, whether it's the Fed hiking more than they have in 20 years, stimulus ending, quantitative tightening. We have no idea what's going on, what normal times look like, and it'll take at least a year or so to have it washed through the system. So let's just go back to normal times and benchmark businesses against that. I think that makes sense. Let's zoom out for a second here because you're talking about the consumer and what the snap pre-announcement meant. And I think what's really interesting, again, we were talking about Target last week. One of the things that CEO Brian Cornell said when he was on CNBC was also the speed in which consumer trends changed in the quarter. And I thought that was interesting. That's basically what Snap is saying. And so you putting your investor hat on or your macro hat on, how easy is it to extrapolate that to, we had a retailer, we have a digital ad player here. One of the reasons why Amazon was getting killed today, they have that big ad business, also a retailer. They had also given us poor guidance. Where else do we want to look? Do we want to look at things like Apple that are obviously large consumer purchases that might be pushed out a little bit? You can extend the life cycle of that supercomputer in your pocket. I think so. Although we haven't seen it in the affordable luxury because those consumers are generally pretty healthy. It seems like where we're really seeing the softness is in the Walmart customer, maybe to a certain extent the low end of the Target customer, but people who have really felt pain due to increasing gas prices, increasing basic staple prices. You heard it from Walmart. If you pull into a Walmart and fill your gas tank up and it costs you 40 bucks more than it did last week, you have 40 less bucks to spend. You're probably not taking out your credit card to do that. And that ties into what you're seeing in the consumer credit. You call it prime and super prime customers still have a significant dis savings that they accumulated during the pandemic. But the near prime customers and subprime customers 
are actually eating into that credit and they're starting to default. So the most vulnerable, the most at risk customers who have less disposable income are really feeling the brunt of this economic slowdown faster than anyone else. And I guess the point of that is that you're talking about that demographic feeling the brunt of the economic slowdown. It's just starting to happen. When you think about Fed rate increases, they often talk about the lag time between change in monetary policy and the time in which it takes to actually work into the real economy. And again, I think it's important to remember the Fed pivoted in November of 2021. They didn't raise interest rates until March. The first 50 basis point hike in 22 years came in May and they're talking about another 50 in June, another 50 in July. So the effect on the economy, they're trying to slow down the economy, that may not happen until the summer or the fall. So this whole little cycle we're in, it just started. And obviously they highlighted in November, thinking about reacting to the prior quarter, right? So they were reacting to last summer. So we're still seeing data they were seeing a year ago, they're still trying to react to. And they're going to continue to react into. So almost definitionally, it'll be an overreaction because the economy will have changed so much in that year, no different than what we saw in the stimulus. And I think very clear now in retrospect, it's non-debatable. We overstimulated the economy, which is one of the causes of inflation, which is causing rates to need to rise and all these other pieces. And I've been saying this for a while, the Fed needs to slow the roll a little bit think about this and not react to the summer of 2021 or the buoyant times of the fall of 2021, but really look at what they're seeing in terms of a lot of negative economic sentiment in today's consumer. Yeah, I think it's really also important, Rick, to separate what's happening in markets and what's happening in the economy. And when we talk markets, you and I, obviously, you're very focused on private markets. I'm focused on public markets. I think public markets started to sniff all of this out way earlier. So Zoom reported last night, Zoom topped out in late 2020, right after the vaccines, just below $600. It's trading just below $100 right now. So it's down 80 some percent. They reported a quarter last night on Monday. I think by all accounts looked optically better than expected. I think there was some funky stuff in there that maybe masked some of the deceleration, but the stock's trying to bottom out here a little bit. And here's one where I would say that it really depends on how you see a company with one product like this going forward. Is this a company that deserves a 28 billion dollar market cap. Now, granted, they have nearly $6 billion in cash, Rick, no debt. So we're talking about a $22.5 billion enterprise value, EV to sales of about 5.3. This was trading at north of 50 times sales at an all-time high. So my question to you, are companies like this, and you remember 20 years ago, there were plenty of one-trick ponies, but raised cash at the top, kept them alive. Their product actually had a long runway. They're still around. Amazon, you could say, is the best example of that. Is this company able to keep one product and keep going at it the way they do? Or do we need to see M&A? Is there a merger of equals out there? Is a Cisco or an IBM? Do they solve some problem for them or maybe even a Google? I'm just curious how you're thinking about standalones versus M&A in this washout period. We teased the listeners, but we never got back to it, of us playing matchmaker. OK Computer plays the dating game with one of our favorites, Netflix and Spotify, which is going to happen for us one day. And I would say Zoom is clearly in a position they have to do one of two things. If they're not going to sell themselves, and as you kind of alluded to, 
it's a one product company. It's the one product is awesome. It's a noun and a verb that everyone in my family and most families in the world now know. Find us on Zoom. Are you Zoom? Are you on Zoom? You have Zoom. All those things is going to be huge. It's a Kleenex of the pandemic generation. And so therefore, huge product with great profit margins, generating tons of cash. But if they don't have an act two, they should be part of a bigger platform. And interestingly, at 600, it was unbuyable by anyone. At 100 bucks a share, it's accretive to a lot of people. As you're starting to see multiples compress, as you're starting to see things get cheaper, you're going to have to see potential M&A at all sizes. How big of a news would it be if Google bought Zoom, if Microsoft bought Zoom, if someone bought Zoom, Salesforce bought Zoom as part of a completely complementary set of features? Well, I think it's interesting to think about M&A again, because January saw Microsoft spend $70 billion for Activision. And when you think about if a company's trading with a $22.5 billion enterprise value that has the sort of margins that Zoom has, and it would be immediately accretive to many different companies, right? And they already have a competing product that is actually not particularly great. We'll call that product Skype. Yeah, or Google Meets or Cisco's WebEx is one of the worst piece of shits that ever existed. And it's been around the longest, which is kind of crazy. It's a product of the 90s and still feels like it's a product of the 90s. It really does. But so you could see a deal, but that's a $40 billion deal maybe. And maybe that's a little too fat. I don't know. I don't know. It might make sense. Communications are everything, right? If you think about compulsion, not only in the consumer, but also in the enterprise, even as I'm back in my office, I'm doing this from my office now. I'm in my office almost every day. I think this is the fifth time I've been on Zoom today. So this isn't going away. It's not going away anytime soon. If you get the Kleenex of video communication, is it worth $20 billion when it is accretive? It makes financial sense. So who's the best buyer, Dan? If you had to pick one, we just named some of the biggest companies in the world. If you had to pick one, who would it be? I would look at it from a strategic, if I'm putting my banker hat on and I was trying to win some business back from like a dinosaur from the 90s, maybe it's like a Cisco or an IBM and saying, listen, you want to become relevant again. If you look at some of the deals that these companies have done, they're not particularly moving the needle. They're not the sort of thing that when you look at some of these recurring revenue models that some of their other competitors over the last few years have been able to transfer their existing businesses into or acquire some, they're not sexy things. If Cisco's ever going to actually have a growth multiple, it needs to have a sexy recurring revenue product. And I think Zoom will be that. They need to be buying a verb, as you said. WebEx and Cisco telepresence are not very sexy. I'm going to go Salesforce. If you think about that real-time employer productivity suite, you have Slack. If you could have Zoom, it really broadens their base. Adding that cash flow mechanism to a company who's not producing much cash would be a nice boost. Yeah, but you know what's crazy is that when Zoom was at its all-time highs, I think it had a market cap greater than Salesforce. Oh, yeah. Which bought Slack for $26 billion. And now here we are with Zoom with a $26 billion market cap or 22, whatever we said, enterprise value. So I think it's really important for our listeners to understand how quickly things can change in the markets. All right, here's one for you. I think I've said this to you before. Right now, Snap at $13 has a $20.5 billion enterprise value. And believe it or not, Twitter's is greater in enterprise value at about $27 billion. This should be a merger of equals because we know Prague Agarwal is dead man walking. The board is dead man walking. I don't know how that whole management team recovers from this. 
No, they're done. Even if he gets a billion dollar breakup fee, he's toast. The board's toast. And Evan Spiegel, I think that like you said for years to me about him on a product standpoint or whatever, however they're executing right now, I would say maybe some managements deserve a mulligan. We're seeing things that we have not seen in 20 years in some places, if you want to call it stagflation in 40 years. So let's see how 30 year old CEO does i think he's probably doing okay but can you imagine you want to create a super app put together two generations of users between twitter and snapchat i mean that and then all of a sudden you have north of 12 13 billion dollars in ad sales you probably can bring twitter's margins up to snaps you can kind of reduce some headcount on sales and engineering a whole host of things and all of a sudden, you got a real competitor because I think the biggest issue when it comes to Google and Facebook is we know that the two of them combined have, what, 85% of digital ads right now. Amazon's number three. So how do you make a better number four competitor? And I think that you're seeing some of the those second-tier ad platforms having better return on ad sales. I know Pinterest, a lot of our companies on the consumer side are getting great results from Pinterest. Some have gotten great results from Snap. You're starting to see people get great results from TikTok as they brought in their advertiser tools platform. So those things are kind of working. And differently, the biggest platforms, especially Meta, Facebooks, those platforms are not working for advertisers because they're so big and they're so broad and there's so much competition among advertisers. So there needs to be that middle class, which works for both. And if you had something with good advertiser tools, a broad base of customers that you could target with first-party data, going back to that being a megatrend, which really has been a thorn in every advertiser and ad platform side of all the new privacy laws. If you have first-party data across Snap and Twitter, that can be a powerful platform. So you just mentioned TikTok, and I think it's really interesting. I think that no one at the time, and a couple of years ago when Trump was still in office, when he was trying to force ByteDance to sell TikTok to an American buyer, I get what his reasoning was. Think about, they have locked out all of our digital companies, so we have their firewall. And I thought that made total sense in light of the trade war that we're in and just some of the issues that we have with them being a repressive authoritarian state and just their whole policy towards data. So why would we let that on our shores. It never went through. I didn't think it was going to, you didn't think it was going to go through. But here's the thing, man. If we were to have this situation, President Biden just made this gaffe, or maybe it was intentional about us militarily backing the Taiwanese. I don't think we would. But think about the precedent that was just set by U.S. multinationals who pulled out of Russia because they invaded a sovereign country, Ukraine, and they're not going back. So China has already blocked out all of our digital companies for the most part. Many of our multinationals, consumer product companies rely on China for a big part of their future growth, that huge emerging middle class. That could be a really interesting situation. TikTok could go away from the U.S. very clearly. And then this whole situation about U.S. multinationals, do we stay in China? Do we not? This could be a really interesting setup for many of our tech companies for the next few years could be the next Bay of Pigs. What is the U.S. going to do if China starts to circle around, sniff around Taiwan more? Obviously, everyone's talking about Russia as a precedent and the things that we're doing now as precedent. And China willing to do it? Are we willing to do it? If China has, in their view, the longest view in the room and a multi-generational view, would they care as much as a president who has a multi-year view? That would be part of your bull snap thesis. If TikTok went away, be part of the bull snap thesis. I'm not sure if that's actionable now. 
Maybe I'll start tweeting at HOTUS and see if we can get that going here. All right, well, listen, we covered a lot of ground here today. It really felt like the markets, after such a precipitous drop from the late March highs, were trying to put in a little bit of a bottom. And I do think it's interesting. Guy and I were talking about this earlier, and he said this. If you had told me a month ago that Snap could have a negative pre-announcement, it could bring down the entire market for one day down 3% in the NASDAQ and down 1.5% in the S&P, he'd say, you're crazy. But that's happening right now. And I think that says a lot about investor sentiment and just really how uncertain they are about the near term. Yeah, I think people are scared. I think they're scared about the consumer. And it's interesting that Walmart, much bigger company that's much more of a bellwether, didn't bring down the market. What you're seeing is compounding effect. Target had a bigger impact, although a smaller company than Walmart. Snap, smaller company than Target, having even a stronger impact. It's just because of compounding effect of, hey, the consumer might be in trouble and rising interest rates might be even worse for them in light of layoffs and everything else going on. So maybe we should be more scared. Maybe we should have a little bit more cash. Well, listen, there's a couple of take bombs out there. My initial reaction to the Biden comment about Taiwan is look at Tesla, look at Apple. Not only do they rely on manufacturing in China, but they rely on the supply chains in and around it. And they also rely on their customers for a big source of those goods. And I think it's interesting as we're talking right now, it's just before three on Tuesday, Tesla is down seven and a quarter percent. The stock's down 36% on the year. It's down more than 50% right now. It topped out last year at $1,270. It's trading at $625 right now. This stock, and I said this a month ago when the stock was just below a trillion dollars. I said, this is a three or $400 billion accident waiting to happen. I said that on Fast Money. And I still think it's a two, $300 billion accident waiting to happen now that it's down three or $400 billion. So I think there's a couple of tape bombs out there left to come in some big, widely held retail names. And I don't think we can really start talking about a bottom until we have the companies do what Snap just did, what Target and Walmart did, what Deer did last week is really have a come to Jesus. And it's not just a supply constrained thing that demands okay. It's both sides here that we don't have the certainty on where we would get to the supply if the demand is as good as we think it was a couple of weeks ago when we last talked to you. And the demand's waning. And then you're going to be uncertain where that comes. And we're seeing, at least in our company, supply coming back online and the consumer's fading. So there's not going to be a stasis, especially if rates continue to rise. Yeah. Last thing I just say is this, is that the negative wealth effect from the stock market being down as much as it is in such a short period of time, if it were to stay down in a protracted bear market, we're also going to see, even talking about it, unemployment's going to start ticking up. And we're going to start to see housing roll over and with interest rates where they're going, at least where mortgage rates are and where we think the Fed is going with Fed funds. There's no easy fixes here, people. I think time is the thing that's going to have to heal this. All right, Rick Heitzman, thank you for joining me. Awesome as always. Let's just call it a hot 30 on tech, on markets. I always appreciate your commentary, man. And we'll see you next week. See you next week, Dan. Thanks a lot. All right, stick around. I have Ryan Dennehy, CEO, founder of Electric, and Dan Turan, former founder of Managed by Q and general partner at Gutter Capital. 
Hey, listeners, it's Dan here. I want to tell you about a company that I'm really excited about. It's called Current. It's a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. I'm a new Current customer. It's already helping me and my entire family manage our finances, all from one easy-to-use app. So try Current for yourself and get the app by going to current.com slash okay. That's current.com slash okay. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank member FDIC. Dan, you're about 10 months into the Road Body program. You look great. It looks to be maintenance now. Congratulations. Give us an update. Yeah, well, I feel great too. So when I think about what I set out to do, I was looking to take about 15% of my body weight off through the Road Body program, and I've done that now. So now it is about maintenance. It is about nutrition. It is about exercise. It's about better sleep, and really better habits here. So I can do this all in the app on the Road Body program here, and I'm really looking forward to actually taking these new behaviors into 2024 because I am feeling a lot better. Well, it's clearly working, Dan, and congratulations. And folks, if you're interested in learning more, go to road.co slash okay. You'll pay just $99 for the first month and $145 per month thereafter. If prescribed, medication cost is separate. That's row.co slash OKAY. We're back. I have Dan Turan, OK Computer listeners. Uh, got to hear a conversation that I had with Dan of Gutter Capital a few weeks ago. If you missed it, go check it out. It was really interesting. His founder journey with Managed by Q, sold to WeWork in 2019, recently started Gutter Capital with a brilliant guy named James Gettinger. You guys know and love James or get to know love James. And Ryan Dennehy here, first time OKC participant, founder, CEO of Electric. This will be Electric. Ryan and Dan, welcome to OK Computer. Thanks for having us. Good to be back. So tell the listener a little bit. I met Ryan a couple years ago through Dan. How do you guys know each other? What's your history here? We had the good fortune of meeting through a mutual friend, another great, used to be New York-based entrepreneur named Josh Bruno, who's now out in Los Angeles. And yeah, we met right when Ryan was starting Electric. I had just started Managed by Q. And actually, James and I were fortunate enough to invest in Ryan's seed round. It was actually probably the first or second check that we ever wrote as angels before Gutter Capital existed. And we've just been friends for years here in New York. Yeah, he's being a little modest. When we first met, Managed by Q already had like 150 employees. And the biggest company I'd ever run at that point was 30 or 40 employees. And I remember walking into his office to have coffee with him for the first time. And I'd never been in an office with a founder who I knew that had the whole floor. I'm looking around. I'm like, oh my God. Electric was like four people at the time. And I was just like, I need to learn as much as humanly possible from this guy. Rule number one, don't hire 150 employees. (laughs) That corrected itself in 2019. Ryan and I first met, like I said, a couple years ago. And it was really interesting because I had followed him on Twitter, as one does. You are a prolific tweeter about your founder journey and also about scaling a company and being a startup here in New York. And you're obviously an investor also. We have lots of mutual friends who think the world of you. Adam Bain, he's been on OK Computer. Jeff Richards of GGV. I know that there's just a lot of people singing the praise of what you guys are doing over there. But one of the reasons I wanted to have Dan back so quickly, he wrote a letter to your portfolio companies at Gutter. You posted it 
on Medium. I don't know if you listened to last week's OKC, but we gave you a shout out about the post there. And it was called Things You Won't Regret. You were giving some advice to your portfolio company founders. And in this period where I think you say there's a lot of doom saying on Twitter about the VC environment, about valuations in the private tech markets. And we thought, well, who would be best to kind of join this conversation than Ryan. So I want to get to some of the main points. And now here's the thing I love about this title of this post, the things you won't regret. And it got me thinking, you guys are maybe a little too young for this, but in the beginning of Jerry Maguire, it was like the things we think, but do not say that was the mission statement that he wrote, got the whole thing going and had that sort of feel to it. So tell me, you often speak to, I know daily, many of your portfolio companies and the founders, but what prompted you to write the letter that you did. It's very detailed. It's on Medium. We will post it in the show notes. Talk to me a little bit about it. And I'd love to get some of Ryan's thoughts because Ryan, if you follow him on Twitter, he's tweeting a lot of this stuff on a daily basis. Thanks for the nice introduction. And I think part of the reason Ryan is so relevant to this conversation is he's a guy who's walked the walk and I think lived through a lot of the hard decisions that I think founders need to make to build an enduring business in a time when there might be a pullback in valuations. And Ryan can speak to his own story But yeah, I mean, I think part of what we were seeing, a lot of the writing coming from VCs, and I think in particular, it's a lot of people whose own books are hurting. They have a lot of late stage tech exposure. And if you were buying late stage privates in the last two years, you probably feel like the sky is falling. But our view is we don't think that's the case. We don't think it's a productive message to deliver to early stage founders who are actually very well positioned if they're thoughtful and disciplined about how they execute. And the note on Doom saying... I think there's a lot of people that as a form of self-soothing want to believe that the sky is falling and want to convince everyone that this is the end. And I think unless you are generating negative gross margin, haven't figured out a business model, you're earning a ton of cash, the sky is not falling. And in fact, all the indicators are looking pretty reasonable. So this is a really interesting point. So Ryan, again, you tweet every day about stuff that I think is relevant. You probably have a really big following among early stage founders, later stage founders, VCs. And you have a very generally optimistic view of a lot of the stuff. So people are following you. They're actually learning. And in past cycles, this is really interesting. There wasn't Twitter. There wasn't the ability to have this sort of following. So there couldn't be groupthink around some of these thoughts. It had to happen IRL. And so I'm just curious, how has this informed the sort of messaging that you have? And obviously, you're an investor, and I'm sure you have a lot of founders reaching out to you much earlier. I'm just curious how you're thinking about this and how it informs the messaging that you have publicly. Well, the context on is my first two startups were both perpetually out of money. So every day was a recession for me for like 10 years. My first startup, we only raised about a million dollars. My second startup, I think we had raised about three and a half. And in both cases, we managed to get to many millions of dollars in revenue. But it was at a big expense, I think, emotionally, because when you don't have money, you essentially have time and calories to burn to make up for it. So Electric's my third company, but it's the first one where I actually feel like we've been properly capitalized. I think Dan has a great perspective on this too, because managed by Q, I mean, he started it with rubbing two sticks together and then eventually was very well capitalized. I think it will go down probably, at least my outsider perspective, as the hardest business to operate. I wouldn't recommend it. When I think about your final days of managed by Q, imagine you're drowning and someone hands you a laptop and that must have been what it was like. So I think these two perspectives, basically two guys who have managed to raise capital, but seen both sides of the coin. So you made the comment about 150 employees when you met him. And one of the things that we focused, Rick and I, when we were talking about your post last week on the pod 
One of the things in the public markets that's starting to seep in right now is just rationalizing headcount. And we're seeing that in the private markets. And this section that you had about employees and evaluating your team with new eyes. Talk to us about that because this seems like it's everywhere right now. Early stage, later stage startup, public companies, your boy Dara at Uber, he's going to focus on profitability now, Dan. And so they're going to reduce some headcount there. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah. So I think there's two very different things that are both worth addressing. And Ryan knows both well, because Ryan's also a prolific angel investor and helps a lot of early companies. On the early team, you hire your friends, you hire whoever you can get to work on the thing, and then you raise some capital. And I think it's really important for people to revisit who's around the table. Once you have some semblance of product market fit, the business is capitalized. And the reality is, the nature of who you can attract and recruit just changes on a biweekly basis. And I think it's really hard for founders Because you do have an emotional attachment to people who helped you get to where you are, but it doesn't mean that they're the right person for the long haul for the business. And as a founder CEO, it is like a really harsh reality that you learn eventually that you're the only person that gets to be green. If you really want to win, you got to surround yourself with people who are excellent and you can't bring everybody else along with you. You could try, but like it's just going to, in my opinion, decrease the odds that you're successful in what you're trying to do. So that's like the early stage thing. I think at the late stage, it speaks a little bit more to the capital efficiency piece, which is... There's some consistency to who's getting laid off. Often it's salespeople. Sometimes you have R&D where basically in both cases, as you have tightening of credit, you have constriction of valuations, the marginal dollar is being scrutinized. And so it's like you're not paying for speculative feature builds and you're not paying for the marginal deal that was more expensive than your core segment you're selling to or your most productive sellers. And I think you're going to see that across the board, but that's, I would say, less the case in early stage startups because most of the businesses we're working with, you have the founder selling and maybe a few salespeople and they need to be productive, but you don't have a floor of salespeople that you said, let's just hire 20 sellers and see if we can crack this vertical. No one's doing that now. I advise a couple early stage startups that are in my universe a little bit. And it was really amazing, the competitive nature to get good engineers to work on brand new things at early stage stuff. Six months ago was nearly impossible. And now I think in the next six months, you're going to have your pick. People are going to be leaving Web3. They're going to be leaving that whole notion that they could make a living doing whatever it is they think they're getting online and that sort of thing. So I'm just curious how you're thinking a bit about this. And the other thing was interesting. I can't remember who said this to me the other day. For like 40 years, Goldman Sachs has had this policy where every year they cut the bottom 5%. I don't know whatever metrics that they use by different groups. Well, they've done away with that over the last year or two because they can't get high quality people or enough high quality people to join the bank. It's just not as interesting as it was 10 years ago, 20 years. I think that's kind of interesting. So are we about to see a little bit of a sea change in some of these noted changes in the workforce that have been really part of this whole, let's call it the last five to six years of this tech run, if you will? Yeah, big time. I mean, you think about it, for most tech startups, 80% of their OPEX is headcount. And so if all of a sudden you take the amount of money getting invested in these startups, you cut it in half or you cut it by even more than that, that's money that most of which was going towards hiring people. So once you kind of suck the oxygen out of the room like that, it's going to have some really obvious effects on hiring. And I think if you also just look at it from the standpoint of the public markets too, there's a number of people that I knew who were working at FANG companies that were planning to leave to start new companies that are not doing that anymore. So a little pushback on that. So Rick and I talked about this last week. I asked him, when did he first invest in Ben Silverman at Pinterest? When did he first invest in companies like Airbnb? These were companies that were formed during the financial crisis, in that recession, in that bear market. 
Netflix is down 70%. Now, Netflix probably has less of an engineering culture. Or maybe, I, I don't know. But you know what I'm saying? Like, But most of these big blue chip names are down. Yeah, well, they're, they're down 30%, Meaningfully. 40%. Amazon is down 45% from its highs. So I'm surprised you're not seeing more people leave. And we're going to get to this Fred Wilson piece that he wrote in ABC. And he's thinking about maybe 12 to 18 months of this thing washing out. And if you're an engineer worth a damn and your stock's been cut in half and you don't really see any light at the end of the tunnel for maybe 18 months, it might be a great time to go out. I think that may be true to a certain extent, but I think we hired well over 100 people last year and we're hiring a fair amount of people this year. And so we have a pretty good sense of some of the leading indicators in the market. There's a sentiment aspect that goes with it. Kind of reminds me, when I sold my first company, we sold on New Year's Day, 2008. I was still in college, but I remember the general vibe in the world at the time in the run-up to the tail end of the real estate boom. Everybody thought that money was just being handed out for free on the sidewalk, because it kind of was. And I think that's how a lot of people felt last year. And so there was a general, you just didn't see the risk aversion that now I'm already starting to see seep in. So there's a mindset. That's a really important point. I'm going to tell you this. On January 1st, 2008, there was no financial crisis yet. A lot of people associate 2008 as the year. 2008 was the only year during the financial crisis, right, this, that the stock market closed down. So if you look at 07 was up, 09 screamed, 08 was the only year. And so it just shows you how quickly you can see changes in sentiment. And so we know that private markets seized up. We know that credit markets seized up later that year. I mean, Bear Stearns went under in March of 2008. And that was the thing that really, I think, got things going. But I think this is really important for some of these new founders or new people new to VC to understand how quickly things can change. Yeah, totally. I mean, just talking to our head of people, Jamie, and we were just looking at our recruiting pipelines for different roles. And we realized it doesn't take many multi-hundred person layoffs of New York tech companies to dramatically change your ability to go hire a candidate. And that's just a handful of companies. But I just think if humans were totally rational, they would all realize that now is the best time to start a company. It's way better to start a company now than it was 12 months ago. I don't think that's the way the world works. I think people look at the markets being down. There's a flight to job security and risk aversion. As counterintuitive as it may be, I just don't know how many VC blog posts are going to actually get people to quit their jobs at Google right now and go start companies. Yeah. And I do think this goes back to we've never been through a moment like this with Twitter. There is such a rush to front run negative sentiment. Nobody sounds smart being an optimist in a moment like this. And it's hard to, right? Because you run the risk of sounding like an idiot. But I think what we see on Twitter is everyone is trying to out-negative each other, which is like trying to drive people to panic. But the reality is we still have unemployment at 3.6%. We have layoffs that are secular to tech, but we also have not been able to hire for the last year and a half. So I think it'll be interesting to see how this metabolizes through the system. But I think there's a lot of unnecessary knee-jerky panickiness about some tech layoffs. When if you look at the broader economy, that just doesn't really a reflection of the broader economy. And so if you are a founder or you're an investor – if your company is selling to late stage private software companies or is one, you might be panicked. But otherwise, this could actually be a good thing comes a little easier to hire. Yeah. And I was thinking about this the other day. I'm like, electric is not a public company. We don't sell stuff to public companies. I don't own a lot of public equities. So for the time being, I actually feel pretty good. And one of the things I was thinking about over the weekend about just the market in general is a lot of the economic headwinds we're seeing now, many of them are supply side, which is really unique. Like normally in history, economic problems happen because people stop buying things. You have a weaker consumer. So I think part of my optimism about this not becoming a deep recession is the fact that the skilled labor shortage is generational. And so as long as you have really, really low unemployment, you have consumers who can buy things and 
as long as you have that, you're also going to have demand for software because they're going to have to fill the gaps of what the humans can do. I think there will always be demand for software. And I think when we come out of the pandemic and we come out of whatever recession that we're going to have. Or that we're in. And we are likely, in my opinion, probably in one. I think the best companies will have doubled down on automation. I think where all the wage gains came in this last couple of years has been on the lower end. And those jobs are literally going to be automated. If you're building software that delivers efficiencies to supply constrained parts of the economy, and all of a sudden, by the way, you can hire better engineers and they're cheaper. This is a boon for you. I'll just tell you this from 25 years in the business, in the investment business, I'd much rather start with what can go wrong, will go wrong, and then kind of work up to what the base case scenario is. Because every 10 years or eight years in my career, there's been an economic meltdown over the last 25 years. Yeah, it's guaranteed. But if we're talking about specifically a lot of the readers of Dan's Medium post and kind of where we started the conversation, early stage tech and for entrepreneurs, I'll never forget right after we sold our first startup to USA Today Sports in the beginning of 2008, then the meltdown happens that summer. President of USA Today basically gets up and we're all freaking out and having all these conversations about the macro environment. And he says to our sports group, which was doing six million in annual revenue on the digital side, it was a very nascent business. He's like, tune it out. It doesn't matter because unless you have double digit market penetration, now's the time to actually go take share. Now's the time to actually, you know, and I think about that with my business with electric. We'll end this year doing somewhere around 70 million in recurring revenue, but we have three tenths of a point of market share in the U.S., So even if half my end customer market went out of business, I could still double, triple in size in the next 12 to 18 months without having to think about it. And so that's the message I keep passing along. Yeah, and we're talking like a Series A stage B2B company. We're talking about 50 customers. So if you can't go out there and find them, regardless of what the macro is, you got another problem. And when it sucks outside, even if the sentiment is that it sucks outside, what I've actually found over whatever 15 years doing this is people actually tend to become more open to new solutions and new ways of trying things. Yeah, they're trying to do more with less. Yeah, because all of a sudden, if you're trying to disrupt the CRM space, all of a sudden your quarter million dollar renewal with Salesforce is under way more scrutiny. If some upstart comes in the door at half the price, that's your opportunity. So my optimism comes from things like that. Most companies, myself included, are subscale. So no matter what's going on from a macro standpoint, there is a way to navigate it. Let's talk a little bit about culture because you guys have both on many different levels, your own companies, but also the companies that you're invested in, you've had to help them navigate this pandemic work from home environment. And Dan, in your post, you talk about culture, you say, define it and live it. Is it becoming increasingly hard to do that? Because COVID doesn't end. You saw that Apple just pushed out their three day a week, work week or whatever. Is it hard to define culture over Zoom? I think it's next to impossible, but I'm maybe turning into a bit of an old man in this regard. Ryan and I lived a similar early stage experience where like you're in it with the people, you're in the office together for way too many hours in a week, and you just really get to care about each other and understand where each other are at and know if someone's having an off day or if they're fighting with their girlfriend or whatever, which you just don't have when you have a Zoom meeting and the meeting ends And they're immediately getting called from the other room by their significant other, their roommate, their kid. And that's like not a knock on people having roommates, significant others or kids. It's just a reality that it's very hard when you teleport from being in a tense meeting instantly. Dinner's on the table in the other room and you got to go. It's inconceivable to me that you could replicate the cultural density that you have in the early stage when people are not physically together. Yeah, and I see that, too. I mean, a lot of the companies that I've invested in that are in that formation stage, sub 10, 12 people. They're all in the office because they'd recognize the fact that like at that nascent of a stage, being around people and the things that happen through osmosis are really essential. 
for the size that we're at, we're close to 500 employees worldwide now. You can definitely define and shape culture. It just, everything has to be way more intentional. Everything has to be way more thought through and designed. I think culture in person, a lot of it happened by accident. And it just took on a life of its own when it's remote or as is our case, we're hybrid. I'd say there's probably 50 people in our office today. We've got a bunch of remote offices around the country and that's all well and good, but everything has to be so much more thought through and everything has to be so much more intentional. Yeah. I assume that there's going to be a lot of leaders, you might call them lieutenants that are really going to step up. They're going to earn their stripes in periods like this because they really have to be efficient with their distributed workforce or the hybrid workforce. Yeah. And I think to Ryan's point around intentionality, and that's a lot of what I was trying to communicate is like it's not a thing that just happens. And I think people get the wrong idea. It's not about how many days you're in the office. It's not about the perks that you have. It's like, what are the values of the company? What are the things that we praise and scorn as an organization? And then how are those woven operationally into how we recruit, how we celebrate wins, how we ask questions, how we promote people, how we fire people? Every single touch point is animated by this very consistent culture. And then it's lived by the leaders, which I think people who are in an early stage company that think I'm going to get to that later, you have a culture, whether you like it or not. And if you're letting somebody else define it, it's probably not going to be the one you were thinking about. The culture starts when the company is just an idea. Like I remember when I was getting electric off the ground and it was just me, no co-founders. And I'd be like in investor meetings and I'd be referring to the company as like, and then when we do this, then when we do that. And I remember Mike Brown from Bowery was like, what do you mean we? <laughs> it's just, you what, know. you have a little mouse in your pocket? Yeah, yeah, right. I've just always thought through the company as it's this thing that is much bigger than me. And so like even so by the time I started Electric, my third company, even when it was just me, I was already thinking of it as this entity that isn't just me. So you tweeted this, Ryan, and you just kind of alluded to this. Lots of doom and gloom out there. This was on May 19th. If you're not a public company, don't sell the public companies and focus on efficient distribution. The next couple of years will probably work out fine. Okay, so you just said that. So talk to me a little bit. How does the public markets work into your psyche as an operator, as a founder? Like you said, you must have some comps in the public markets that you're constantly thinking about here or investors are thinking about. In a period like this where literally the NASDAQ last year was just on a runaway breakout until the point in which the Fed said they're changing their course on interest rate policy focused on inflation. It happened in like mid-November. And then since then, at last week's lows, it was down like 30%. But many stocks that you might think, oh, that's kind of comparable are down 60, 70, 80%. How does that psyche work into the way you think about the future of your company, your industry, private tech, you invest? Also, I'm just curious how it seeps in there. The biggest thing is, I'll preface this by saying, I'm in a luxurious position in that we raised two rounds of capital between Q4 last year, Q1 of this year. I think I might have a much different point of view if I had to be out in market raising capital this quarter or next quarter. So sort of preface it with that. But yeah, it has a huge impact. As a CEO, when the market was as hot as it was from midway through 2020 through the tail end of last year, and you're getting inbound interest from investment funds all over the world, literally throwing money at you. And they're willing to price the company at some completely make-believe number. I don't care who you are, how disciplined you are. Like That's going to influence the way that you think about your business. It's going to influence... You're going to wake up every day thinking that you're invincible. The reality is for most high-growth B2B SaaS companies, you're running this cash incinerator. The only thing you need to get focused on is how do you turn it down? So the upshot in all this is that if you want to run a great business, you've got to run it in a really disciplined manner. And so again, to my point I just made... I don't care how disciplined you are when people are literally throwing money at you 
there's just a limit to how tough you're going to be with that discipline. So valuation since then has come down just across the board in general. Danny, you're out there. You're deploying capital. You just launched a fund. And for you, I have to assume like the timing couldn't be better because you were starting to think things were getting a little too frothy last year. And that was a message that you were very clear about. Again, not some dire warning, but it's just like from all the indicators that you're looking at, things were getting a little hot. He was ahead of the curve because I remember when he was getting the fund together initially, he wouldn't even play that game. Things you never saw Dan Turan do last year was like YOLO a million dollars into a $40 million pre-product company. And this is hugely to the credit of my partner, James. We believe that we have to come to a fundamental view on price amongst ourselves on every single deal that we do, which means we don't follow other people's pricing. And we actually do like pretty detailed valuation work internally to arrive at what we think is a reasonable price, which doesn't have anything to do with the current market moment. It has to do with like a much longer view because... In most cases, it's unusual that we've all lived through whatever 13-year bull market, secular boom in tech, where prices could only go up. But for every other period in history, if you started a business and the average time to exit a business is seven to 10 years, you started and ended a business in two different business cycles. So it just speaks to having like a fundamental view. And I honestly think venture has been an incredibly easy market, which has attracted some pretty undisciplined competition. It's not been hard to return a 3x fund for the last 10 years. I think that maybe is going to change. And I think a lot of people are going to get washed out. But basically, the last two years, I think like half the market was asleep at the wheel. As long as you were in the market and participating, you thought you were an investor. Whenever I hear people are like, oh, yeah, like last year, I traded stocks. You didn't trade stocks, you bought stock and it went up. Very different from trading. It's same with VC. It's like, were you really an investor? or Did you just buy stuff? Yeah. This idea of like, well, it's going to be a unicorn. So what does it even matter what the price is? Like, that's what people say. I was just smirking when Ryan was saying that, because obviously I stare at Bloomberg and FactSet all day long. I talk about public markets and it's funny. And like you, I'm going to channel my inner Baltimore, Danny, because you went to school in Baltimore. But Omar from The Wire, remember when Marlo says to him, that's my money. And Omar says, no, man. He goes, money ain't got no owners, only spenders. And I think about that line all of the time. It's like, to your point, it's like, no, no, you were just buying stocks. Unless you sell them, that's not your money. And that's the thing that I think is really interesting. This is going to be like what we would say is a hard pivot right here about Tesla. It's just like these Tesla geniuses who bought the stock. The stock did not work really for like six years prior to the pandemic. I'm just saying. And then it went up a thousand percent for some God forsaken reason. Like money had to go into the craziest shit possible. And it went there. And then he's stoking it. But it's really interesting because all of these geniuses who wrote it from under 100 at the lows in the pandemic to its highs last year at 1200, the stock's now 600. This is, again, me making some sort of judgment. I suspect it's going much lower for a whole host of reasons. So were those people geniuses? Or are they the dumbest motherfuckers that you could possibly find because that stock went from 60 to 1260 in 18 months and you didn't sell it? Venture is the same way, though. It makes the argument for like just this very simple question, which is like, what do you fundamentally believe? And I think most of these people don't have a fundamental case either way. I would say there might be people in there who could walk you through a very rational, fundamental case that they believe based on what they know. Then they're executing a game plan against a set of facts they believe. I'm okay with that. I don't have to agree with their facts. I don't have to yeah. agree with their game plan. But it's people that literally are just flapping in the breeze. And they're the same people that were piling on to YC companies at crazy, like, whatever, $60 million posts in a seed round. And then are, like, retweeting the YC, like, winter is here letter. I think both of you guys make a good point. Like, this is when people really find out what they're made of. Now more than ever, whether you're a founder, whether you're an investor, 
actually having a view, a real point of view is so important. I think the people that are going to enter this cycle that are better equipped are the ones who had a point of view last year that wasn't just, well, I'm paying this price because that's what everyone else is paying. Last October, when we got our Series D at Electric done at 800 million post, there were people on our cap table who were texting me after I signed the term sheet saying like, that was a cheap deal. I've got a company that's doing less revenue and worse margins that just got their deal done at 1.5 billion. So to Dan's point around having discipline, I, as the CEO and founder of the company in my heart of hearts, I just know putting the market BS aside, this company isn't worth $1.5 billion. So just because I can get someone to write me a term sheet at 1.5 doesn't mean I should go do it. And I was fine taking some shit from some of our investors being like, oh, that was cheap. Now I feel much better about that decision, but having a real view is so important. And that is where people get themselves into trouble. And I was guilty of it as an operator myself. Like we raised too much capital at too high a prices and then the market jitters a little bit and also not everything goes to plan and it takes longer to figure stuff out. And then you're the one having the layoffs, which Ryan has been through, I believe. I have definitely been through and a lot of these public companies are now. There's nothing worse than standing up in front of your company and being like, we're in this situation because I made bad decisions. Being a CEO is great when things are going well. When they're not going well, it's literally the worst job. I remember at our previous company, my co-founder was getting married on a Saturday and we had to run payroll, I think on Friday, and we were going to be out of money. And we had convinced someone at the 11th hour to do this last minute investment and the wire hit on our end on Thursday. We made payroll on Friday. He got married on Saturday. But having to stare down the barrel of, wait, we might have to riff 80% of this company the day after my co-founder gets married is brutal. But to Dan's point, that was all self-inflicted. We drove that car directly at the brick wall. Like had that happened, we would have deserved it. Fortunately, it didn't. But do you think that's part of the mindset though now? I just mentioned Elon. I mean, if you read that Ashley Vance book about him that came out, I think four or five years ago that he participated, it was a biography on him. I mean, on almost every company he ever founded, he was always headed for a brick wall playing chicken for all intents and purposes. And I think five years ago, he had a handshake deal with the Google guys. They were already making lots of Model S's back then or lots were, to sell the company because they couldn't make payroll. Think about that. It was a publicly traded company. Is that currently the mindset that you guys see? And I'm not talking about your portfolio companies or companies that you've invested in. Were there a lot of founders playing fast and loose over the last few years because there was so much capital? Oh, God, yeah. And there was no thought being put into it. But don't you guys think, though, that we just scratched the surface then? Everyone wanted to dunk on fast and bolt. It seems like there's going to be dozens, if not hundreds, of those situations coming out in the next year. Everywhere. Everywhere. So when, what does that do for the psyche of people you know, we just talked about? So you're saying you don't think a lot of people are going to go take a shot, leave some big publicly traded company because their options are underwater, the stocks in the- And there's a hundred more fasts out there that haven't happened yet. Yeah. So what does that mean? What does it mean for you deploying capital? What does it mean for you from a competitive standpoint? Again, it's like if you come to your own fundamental view on every company and the price you pay, like- I think it's great. There's yeah. going to be more talent available. Yeah. I think as a manager, we're going to be looking pretty good in a world where like we weren't yellowing into that stuff. Again, if you are a founder today building a business that delivers a software-driven solution for the real economy that does things like cheaper and better, you're in a really good position. Yeah. If you're fast or whatever, and there's a lot of hand-waving about what's really going on and you're raising these crazy prices, the next few years are going to be challenging. But that's to Ryan's point. Like People made choices to get there. Yeah. 
it's just the classic when the tide goes out, who's wearing shorts and who isn't it's just kind of the invisible hand at, at work here. So yeah, for a company like ours, I was thinking about it just this morning on my walk to the office. I'm like, okay, how do we get more aggressive? You know, we've done a little bit of M&A. Should we be doing more M&A? Should we be thinking even more aggressively about different paths to expand? Because there have been some people we've had our eye on from a competitive standpoint that I just know, I'm like, there's just going to be less capital for those people. I think the timing of this conversation is really amazing because there seems to be lots of competing voices around these narratives. Danny, I think you're one of the most thoughtful guys that I know in the business. You and I have lots of talks about public markets where I'm driving the train. We have lots of talks about private markets where you're driving the train. And I've gotten to know Ryan through you. And just the transparency that you have about what you're building there and how you're thinking about it, I think is amazing. So you got to follow Ryan on the Twitter here. But guys, I think this is like a first or second inning conversation. And I think we're going to have multiple opportunities to kind of revisit it over the next year or two. And again, I think just the optimism that you show about people doing things the right way, I think is really important. So I appreciate you coming on and talking about this. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Thanks, guys.